to The Practical Prophetic, where prophetic ministry is made practical. I'm Beth Wingate, I'm your host, and welcome to the podcast. Today on our podcast, we have an episode of Prophetic History, and today we are going to focus on the Cane Ridge Revival, which many scholars say is the epicenter of the Second Great Awakening. And I have a reason why I'm bringing this, and I believe it's so timely right now, because I believe we are on the very cusp of a Third Great Awakening. So let me back up and lay a foundation. What is the first Great Awakening? So the first Great Awakening happened in the early 1700s with Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, and there was an emphasis on what we would call turn or burn preaching. In other words, Jonathan Edwards was famous for his sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and there was a focus on salvation and repentance justification through faith and so out of that movement entire cities were swept with revival and people being born again it was a a powerful movement that happened now this happened before our revolutionary war so let's move up the timeline here we have in 1776 the revolutionary war which by the way didn't just happen only in that year that was the beginning And then that war would last for years, several years, before it really concluded. And then after that, you have this American expansion out of New England, and you have land grants, and so you have a pioneer movement that is happening as people begin to push out and settle land in this newly formed country. And out of that comes the Cane Ridge Revival. But before the Cane Ridge Revival, uh, John Wesley, who had been born in England, he came to America. He, uh, he was very moved. He really laid the foundation for the roots of Pentecostalism and charismatic believers here uh, all over the world, but mainly here in America. But then he goes back to England, and in 1739, he begins to have open-air meetings. And you see that a lot of denominationalism is born out of the First Great Awakening and the work even uh, before and during that time that John Wesley had laid down. Now, John Wesley is going to become the father of the Methodist movement, he and his brother Charles. But I don't want to get too far sidetracked. So let's come back to America. You will see that in the late 1700s and like 1790s, there will be some other camp meetings, but they're not largely organized. Some people will say that the Rehoboth Methodist camp meeting in Lincoln County, North Carolina in 1794 was the first camp meeting, and that may be the case. But it was not as uh, large, not as widely organized, and did not have the kind of manifestations as Cane Ridge. So in 1800, Cane Ridge becomes this massive revival that sweeps the entire world. Sort of like the way I would compare it to uh, later to Azusa Street. It was that powerful, that large, and then had aftershock that went out across the world. So, uh, like I said, after the Revolutionary War, you have land grants, you have expansion, you have pioneers, 
And because of that, you did not have people in towns and cities in the same way. They were a very frontier-type lifestyle. So you would have circuit rider preachers. And many of these preachers would pastor three, four, five churches, and they would have a schedule where they would rotate between their churches. And when they, when they were not there, the elders would do like a Bible study or, or something like that. And wherever their meeting place was, sometimes it was homes. Sometimes they had constructed small structures to be their churches, but very frontier. In fact, just to sidebar, this is still common in some areas. My husband used to work in a certain doctor's office, and he had a patient who was an elderly man who was a circuit pastor. He pastored uh, four small congregations. His name was Reverend Joe Jackson. He's since passed away, but he, he pastored four small congregations going to one each Sunday of the month, and he would be on a circuit. So that's not so uncommon in rural areas and some some small churches that they can't afford to pay a full-time pastor, and maybe the pastors are circuit pastors. And, and today it's not uncommon. In fact, most pastors are bivocational, but I don't want to get too far sidetracked with, with those things also. But so you have circuit pastors. Now, it was not uncommon for your circuit pastor to come to an open air space between his congregations because usually they were contained within, you know, within a a day or two's ride by, by covered wagon or whatever. And so they would have like a gathering of all of his congregations and people would come and camp and it would, you know, camp meetings. So that's, that wasn't necessarily uncommon, but there had never been a camp meeting organized to this extent. So in 1800, you're going to see what is considered the first open air planned camp meeting. And it's going to take place in Bourbon County, Kentucky, right on the border of Paris County, Kentucky, on the Gasper River Banks. And there is a pastor named Reverend Barton Stone, and he was a Methodist pastor. This is about 20 miles east of Lexington. And he, uh, he too, was a circuit preacher. And they would refer to themselves as revivalists, and they would make up these little pamphlets. And uh, now you got to remember, this is before radio. This is before television. And so reading was the way you got your communication. And so uh, circuit pastors would do these pamphlets or or little tiny booklets or magazines or whatever, and they would give those out, and that was the main form of communication. So people were familiar with Barton Stone. He was a very popular pastor, and he called himself a revivalist, and it was not uncommon for him to circuit along several Methodist churches. By the way, let me sidebar here, too. Uh, Methodist or Methodism at this point in the country was considered a little radical, and the Baptists were considered even more radical than the Methodists. Uh, Probably you would compare that to charismatic or Pentecostal churches today. It was very radical, very edgy, (laughs) very out there. They were considered more emotional in their worship and and things like that. And so that was sort of frowned upon by the establishment, more mainstream denominations like the Presbyterians. 
So although Presbyterian was still a tiny bit edge, edgy, you mean your Episcopals, which came out of the Anglican Church out of England, was your mainstream at that time, just to put things into perspective. So Barton Stone comes to Kentucky. He sets up a, a wooden structure pulpit. It was sort of like a, uh, what we would call like a podium that was tall, like with uh, if you're at a high school band and the drum major has, you know, a little podium that is a few feet off the ground so that he can see out over the crowd. And so they would construct these wooden stage type pulpits uh, out by the riverbanks. And people would, because no one lived in a city, you had been given a land grant in the middle of nowhere. And so you would take your your wagon and, and some your own supplies and food and you would come and camp and these would typically last like a weekend or maybe a week and you would travel you know maybe uh, you know five ten maybe 20 miles you know and so that's how that would work and he began preaching and he was connected with two brothers John and William McGee John was a Presbyterian pastor and William was a Methodist pastor and the McGee brothers each had their own circuits. And so the three of these came together with another Presbyterian minister named John McGreedy. And so the, these four pastors, and, and you've, you know, you're representing Presbyterian and Methodist churches, uh, each with their own circuits. So you already have a network of a dozen or more churches who are connected to these ministers. And so they begin to bring more people and extend the time of the camp meeting and they began to have so there's let me explain how this worked it's it grew it evolved it was very organic so it wasn't like this part was planned but it will grow into having like four or five sections to the camp meeting and the this will spread out up and down the bank into the woods i mean it was just a, a huge this was like a field but it it sort of took over this entire area and and grew and lasted uh, some people will say a whole year some people will say weeks i'm sure there was a remnant of people there for up to a year but it was several weeks that was sort of like what i would call the main activity that happened here and so it began to take on life so these brothers the McGee brothers, one being Presbyterian, one being Methodist, they began to recruit other circuit pastors in the area, and many of them were Baptist. And so now you have, you know, four, three or four denominations represented where they're bringing in other preachers. And so the way this would work is they would have the main podium that they had built out of wood that was open air. They had erected uh, smaller podiums a little, you know, spaced out so that you're not competing with one another. They would have a large prayer tent. Uh, they would have smaller tents, like some tents people were living in, and then they would have these tents scattered throughout the campground that were for prayer, just for prayer and the, uh, and worship. Some were for worship, some were for prayer, some were for both. It was, it's not real clear. The accounts that I've read and tried to piece together all of this information are not always clear, but, but that seemed to be the case. There was a whole section, a whole segregated area for African-American believers. They sort of had a similar, they sort of had a similar setup on the edge of the camp. Um, and, and of course, this was a time when racial, our, I'm sure you're aware of our racial history and we don't have to go into that, but this was, as far as the campground went, 
there was a for that time a lot of inclusivity that didn't exist you know women you have to remember they can't vote at this time Uh, our social dynamics are extremely different than they are today Um, and this is no commentary but uh, you know things were just different (laughs) and so but you but you had so many groups here in fact the AME church and in a lot of ways is going to be birthed out of this movement so you uh you have all of these groups here and and then they construct during this time a meeting house uh, that is known as the Cambridge meeting house and it'll sort of become the inside main part and and from what I understand this is where the preachers taught the other preachers and then they would have elders come in and you know I'm not sure how they organized it but there was a meeting house but it was small it only held you know around 100 people so uh they they bring in these preachers uh so you've got uh Barton Stone, John McGreedy and the McGee brothers and the crowds begin to grow and several hundred people at this point and they've been setting up camp for a couple of weeks. And then one of the things that really brings and makes a difference is a Methodist revivalist by the name of Peter Cartwright. He is brought in as, a, as like a main speaker. And let me just give you a tiny bit of history on Peter Cartwright. He had been a politician in Illinois and had actually, uh, in like a primary, had ran against Abraham Lincoln. This sort of sets the scene of who who some of these people are. He was more, I guess, public and and more had more prominence as a speaker. And he was a fiery orator and speaker, and he uh, was very moving. You know, very probably what we would call very theatrical. I think of people like Catherine Coleman. You know, the way she speaks, or we would say today maybe someone like Benny Hinn, or you know, a little more theatrical in his speech. But he taught a strong. Uh, repentance-based message, uh, what we would call turn or burn, you know, just that you have got to get your life right, you know, and he would have been very passionate. And so this is where we see uh, things begin to shift. Now, they were having four to five sermons a day with up to sometimes, they say 10 to 20, different accounts, say 10 to 20 preachers per day preaching throughout the campgrounds. You know, spread out in these wooden pulpits or the tent or the main meeting house or the uh, the big stage they had set up or the small stages. And so they said that crowds began to be moved to repentance and that um, in the middle of especially Cartwright's sermons that people would begin to cry and they would begin to be moved and they would begin to uh, to, to just cry out for repentance and that uh, there began to be manifestations. People began, for example, one story talks about how when Cartwright was preaching that a woman just screamed out, you know, for forgiveness from the Lord. And uh, in fact, in in one account, let me get my paper here. In one account, the McGreedy brothers were, the McGee brothers were preaching. And he said that, as he was, uh, as John, the Methodist, was preaching that a woman shouted out. Well, William, who was Presbyterian, admonished her that religion was no place for an emotional outburst. And John, who was so, I guess, full of the Holy Spirit at this time, he went to stand up 
And I don't think he was going to debate his brother. I think he was going to address the woman or continue preaching. It's not real clear. But when he stood up, he was slain or fell as dead or passed out, however you want to use the terminology. But he was slain in the spirit. He, he fell out and was praying as he fell out. And then his brother, who was the Presbyterian, William, he um, he's astonished by this. And he embraces this as divine. He says, this, this is from the Lord. And he repented for getting onto the woman. And as that happened, they said the crowd, it's like the whole crowd was swept with a manifestation of repentance. And people began to cry and to well. And then they said people began to just fall out and that hundreds were slain in the spirit instantly and that all those who saw it you know marveled at this and of course word of this spread like wildfire just to sort of also set the scene some of the early writers and journalists and people of this age knew that with expansion came some issues alcoholism was rampant on the frontier you don't always have access to clean water it's hard work people would go out there and be promised great land their land was not easy to work with you know a lot of disappointment you still had native americans to contend with in some areas you had opportunists at every turn so people some people had it was hard and so the alcoholism was huge you had just had the revolutionary war the war of 1812 is brewing so things are contentious and there's definitely alcoholism is a major issue in fact the women's temperance movement will be birthed out of this time and with the alcoholism comes a lot of abusive behavior and and you can get the idea you had deism and universalism that had taken hold and a lot of people had felt like Christianity was on the decline. Protestantism was on the decline because of these ideas that were invading the church. As people would move out into the frontier, the the churches in New England were bleeding out members. They were not happy about that. They, and they weren't going to plant churches. They were just leaving the church. There were no ch- churches in the frontier for many people. And then a lot of preachers would criticize the pioneers by saying that they were called them greedy land grabbers and so there was a lot of debate a lot of political instability many preachers called the frontier during this period egyptian darkness that maybe paints the picture for you there was no churches in the frontier or very few and uh, it was painted as an immoral place a rough tough lawless immoral place and so especially early after the revolutionary war it would have been viewed that way so that you see that for there to be this kind of revival and remember the churches were spread out for a purpose there weren't a lot of churches and many met in homes in fact when as a sidebar i did i do genealogy as a hobby and my husband's family back in this era they were early Baptist, and there was a little plaque on the church that that particular church was started by one of his, you know, great, 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 great forebears, grandmother. The church met on the porch of their house, and, and they had a Sunday school, and it said it was the first Sunday school south of the railroad in southwest Georgia. So, so that gives you an idea. Churches were very scattered 
at this point and not very numerous. And so for there to be an event where, number one, there's a huge camp meeting with this many preachers in one area, and for people to begin to cry out in repentance and then to see hundreds instantaneously slain in the Spirit, which this was not commonplace. Some of these limited manifestations in the early church and the first great awakening, but this was very limited. And I have a reason. You may be asking, why is that? Uh, Just a sidebar right here and give you a little bit of history. After the early church, we went into what is called the Dark Ages, where only the priesthood controlled access to the Word of God. And it was in Latin, and you had to be trained to read it. And so most people were not educated. And then people who were educated didn't have access to the Word of God. And a lot of that changed with one man named Martin Luther, who was a Bible translator and a priest, and who he had a revelation by reading the Word of God for himself that the just shall live by faith and are saved by faith through grace and not through works. And so he sparked what is called the Reformation. And so the church, in a lot of ways during the Dark Ages, the Word of God was largely under lock and key, and that's why it's called the Dark Ages, and the Reformation was unlocking that lock, and then the door gradually opened. And so you see the First Great Awakening, which there were similar movements going on in in all over the world, in England and Europe, but uh, largely credited with Whitfield and Edwards. And then you see, and that comes out of the Puritan movement. It's all kind of a a long history, but I'm giving you like the one-minute rundown, so I'm leaving a lot of things out. I'm brushing with broad strokes here. But coming back to Cane Ridge, this was unusual. This was unusual manifestations. Well, as word of this spread... I mean, it spread like wildfire. People came from all over, and the crowds grew, and the numbers are disputed. Some places will say 10,000. Some will say as many as 20 or 25,000. And then you have to realize, now, who are they counting? Are they counting children? Are they counting the African-American people who were there? Are they counting the women? And so there has been reports, amazing numbers, but it was in the tens of thousands. I think we can safely say in the tens of thousands, somewhere between 10 and 30 to 40,000 are the estimates of people who were actually at Cane Ridge. Now, many of them were not there the whole time. People would come in and come out and return. And, you know, you had a lot of spectators who came to just witness. In fact, one of those witnesses is Reverend James Finley. Here's what he said. So as the as the preaching intensified, there began to be manifestations of the Spirit. I want to tell you what this was before what he said. And remember, this is Baptist, Methodist, and Presbyterian pastors who were circuit-riding preachers who were preaching all day at this open-air camp meeting for weeks on end. And they said that people began to be so moved with repentance that they would cry and that they would shout out for mercy. Of course, people were fainting or that slain in the spirit. People began to dance in the spirit. They would, some people would jerk. They said that many people were healed instantly of their addiction to alcohol. Let me tell you what this witness said, James Finley. He is quoted as saying, the nearest approximation 
speaking of Cane Ridge, was the day of Pentecost. Wow. I would love to have seen what he saw. And Reverend Barton Stone said in one newspaper about Cane Ridge, he said he rode up on his horse into the field, and it says, if men had been slain in battle, laying all over the field, but they were crying, uttering words of repentance, asking God for mercy. Wow, how about that? One story talks about these sisters. There were some young sisters who were there. And as one of the men was preaching, I believe it was Cartwright, as he was preaching, that one of the girls shouted out, mercy, mercy. She started crying for mercy and that she fell and like she was passed out. And they said there was a, they called for a doctor and there was a doctor there and he came and he didn't know what to make of it. He said, she, you know, she's breathing, she has pulse. We don't know what to make. Maybe she's in a, uh, I think they called it a state of ecstasy or, you know, the, the language they used then. And she had passed out and her sisters also had had a similar experience and passed out and people didn't know what to think about it. And then they said, as the the young girls began to cry, they would wake up and cry for mercy. And, and people were like, what happened? What happened? And they were just talking about how they were moved with repentance. And, and then that was like contagious. And, and they said people all around them, when they testified of crying out for repentance, when they came to, that people would just fall out. And so they said it was just astonishing to people and, and that it was amazing. And so I wanted to bring forth the Second Great Awakening and the Cane Ridge Revival for a few reasons. So we didn't really do an episode yet, and we may still do one on the prophetic significance of this year uh, for the Hebrew year. But to summarize it, uh, we're entering the Hebrew year 5782, and just to, to sidebar right here, so Hebrew is a little different from English in that every letter has a numerical value and a picture that's associated with each letter. So if I, we take the numbers, there is a picture or a letter associated with each number, and this is not like weird numerology, but it does have some prophetic significance. Uh, We did a podcast, Dr. Patricia Cox and I, last year, and we talked about the significance of 5781 and that the summary of that meant that the prophetic message was to speak in wisdom or close your mouth. And then the rest of the year, everyone is wearing a mask, and that really began right at Passover, and so that's prophetically significant. Well, the message for this year, 5782, can be interpreted to say that God is declaring that the church or his house is going to speak in unity. And so I believe we are on the cusp of a third great awakening. Some of the markers of this great awakening were, number one, that it it was organic. Number two, it was interdenominational. Number three, evangelism and repentance were at the core. It was about Jesus. It wasn't about anything else, social justice, you know, whatever. It wasn't about that. It was about Jesus and our need for Him as our Savior. That was the most important thing in this revival, that it was to, to awaken to how much we need 
Jesus and that he, he died on the cross for us to save us from this fallen world. And so that was so important. It did have manifestations, and that was exciting, and that was what set people on fire, but that was not the core. The core was Jesus. You know, I didn't get to go to Brownsville, but my mom and my sister were able to go, and she said, you know, what you had heard about about Brownsville was about some of the manifestations of people, you know, falling and seeing visions and and crying and you know all these things but she said that was not the focus the focus was evangelism they would do these baptismals where people who had gotten uh, rededicated their life or gotten born again would give testimonies before they would baptize them and she said that's that was the whole thing was was it was evangelistic so that has to be central and at the core of, I believe, this next awakening. Another thing was this revival was birthed out of obscurity, out of mainly obscure people in an obscure place, and it wasn't what we expected. It wasn't, you would have thought that New England would have been the hub, you know, or maybe the Carolinas, but Kentucky at this time was completely frontier. There just wasn't much there, and so it was just not where we expected And I think we can't leave out the circuit riding part that as a body, as a body of believers, as the church, the interconnectedness, there's something to that. And I may do a whole episode on the circuit riders. That's such a fantastic history lesson also. And a lot of this history is lost on our modern church. We don't teach Christian history in our churches Unless you dig for it yourself or you're in seminary or, you know, maybe something along those lines, you don't learn these things. And so the Cane Ridge Revival is super important to our history as a church, as Americans. There, there's so much that was birthed out of that. And, and we just we can't uh, not look at that. Now, some pastors will say that or some scholars will say that the Cane Ridge Revival is a part of the Second Great Awakening, and then they'll they'll list some other movements, the Chautauqua Movement, and some other things as the Third and Fourth Great Awakening. I'm not so sure that those fit because they didn't have the impact that the first two did. I would maybe say that you could group Azusa Street in with the Cane Ridge Revival because it was not long after that that Azusa Street happened, and there was connections there between some of the leadership. And so I believe we're on the cusp of the third great awakening. And I'm not alone in that thought. Many people think that too. And it is a little debatable depending on what denomination you're in and things along that line. But but I'm of the belief that we are on the cusp of the third great awakening. I don't know about you, but I never in a million years <laughs> dreamed that lawlessness and godlessness would be accelerated to the level that it has been in the last five years, but especially since this pandemic. It has just really accelerated things on the timeline as far as eschatology is concerned. We are pretty far down that end times timeline, if you will. And so I will challenge you, just like the pastors, those circuit preachers that were at the Cane Ridge Revival, preaching in a field to pioneers, that classic Turner Burn message. Now, I do want to preface by saying they they had some things right, but I'm not sure they had everything right. They they seem to confuse conviction and condemnation, 
And I don't know that they always did that. I can't trust all of the reporting. You know, there was a lot of people against what they were doing and thought they were emotional and crazy. Time has proven out they were not crazy. And they were pioneers of that we are beneficiaries of the move of God that's happened in this world that was started there. And even before that with Jonathan Edwards and before that with John Wesley and then all the way to Martin Luther. And then you could take it all the way to the early church. It's all connected. And I would just say that we are living in a time where we need the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We have a society today that is preaching that social issues are the most important, socialism, that they're telling you that you as a self, as an individual, or as a collective is the most important thing, and that you you should embrace these ideas. Well, I'm here to tell you that we as believers are a part of a kingdom that is bigger than us. We're just one cog in the wheel, that we're a part of something much bigger than us, the kingdom of God. We are one spoke in the wheel. We're not that important. The whole message of dying to ourself has, seems to be lost on this, this culture that we're in, but we have to take on the culture of the kingdom. And there is a greater law, the law of love, and we we serve a living God who is speaking to us every day, we just need to be able to perceive it. And he says, my sheep know my voice. And so I look at the Cane Ridge Revival and I am inspired. And I believe that we are on the cusp of another great awakening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I look forward to bringing you more prophetic history like the Cane Ridge Revival. Have a blessed day. Thank you again and have a blessed day.